Street Projects. Monique Presley, legal analyst, crisis manager, Georgia Ford, independent journalist. Glad to have all three of you here. Uh, Robert, if you heard that conversation, I was talking, uh, three of them, I didn't get a good answer. You're going to have to, look, this is going to be, and I've heard this from Cliff Albright, Tasha Brown, and others, that they're already facing how do you go to people who are not regular voters, who are not registered, and say, I need you to get registered and vote? What is the response if they say, don't, don't, don't y'all have the White House, the House, and the Senate, so what got passed? Well, that's exactly the response, and we're seeing this already, particularly with the infrastructure bill finally working its way through Congress uh, last week. It's amazing when there's a, a $1.2 trillion slush fund at stake, uh, well, you can find 19 Republicans to come on board. What is them making money? Uh, all of a sudden, everything gets passed, but when it comes to your and my rights, uh, everything gets pushed to the back burner. Remember, we still have not moved on the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. We have not moved on the uh, For the People Act. We also have not moved on criminal justice reform. We had an entire year of activism last year, predicated on the idea of reforming our criminal ju criminal justice system. There's not one federal law different today um, than it was when George Floyd died. So when you're talking about young people, when you're talking about uh, voters who are turning out for the first time in 2020, it's going to be a hard sell to say, well, we need to keep the House in order to, to uh, continue to do the same nothing that we promised you we were going to do before. And I think that, I know the president right now is going through everything he's going through with Afghanistan. I know he's trying to get infrastructure across the line. I know we have to do immigration, but we cannot continue to push the interest of African Americans to the back burner because at the end of the day, we know what's going to happen. They're going to come back to the well. They're going to try one more time, and then they're going to be very mad when you have a MAGA wave coming in 2022, and they lose the House and lose the Senate, and everything uh, gets put on hold because they've not delivered for the most reliable base of voters that they have. So I think it's imperative for Democratic leadership to take this as seriously as the black community as Martin Luther King III is leading marches in Arizona. Uh, I've been across the country with Reverend Jackson on me in the marches uh, from D.C. To, uh, to Austin, Texas, to Atlanta, to going through Montgomery uh, shortly. So I think that we need to have our white allies, the same uh, people who are there cheering with us and marching with us and fighting with us when it was time to pass their agenda. We need that same energy, as the young people say, when it comes to voting rights and criminal justice reform. Marches are one thing, Monique, but getting people to actually register, then turn out, is another. What is the narrative that has to be crafted to, in order to break through? Because we all know that in the midterm elections, you typically have a downturn. You clearly have a motiv motivated right-wing base who wants to take control of the House and the Senate. And so what is that narrative that has to be told, uh, that has to be crafted, that's going to catch people's attention to go, yeah, you know what? I got to get registered and I got to vote. Well, I, it's our lives at stake, uh, plainly, and I, I'm not really sure uh, that we need to sell them like we're doing hambone, hambone, or cutting some step and trying to offer them free beer in order to get our folks to vote. Uh, the margin was slim. Yes, we have the presidency and we have the majority in both houses and in the Senate by the narrowest of margins. We need more. Uh, I understand Robert's point. Voting rights is certainly an issue for our people, maybe the 
issue of our times for our people, but it should be for all people. But what is it about infrastructure that isn't our people's issue? I mean, who, who doesn't understand that the majority of the jobs are going to go to our folks that are created from that bill? So we talk in plain English. We tell the truth to our own constituencies, to our family members, to how, our communities. How, how, how the majority of the, those jobs infrastructure bill going to go to our community? How? Because the, the jobs that go for highways and byways and roads and all of the things that they're looking to do go to a majority blue collar, majority people of color, not necessarily the contracts, and that's a problem, and I get it, and we want to make sure that, it's, that there's more of that, but these are jobs that go to black and brown folks. Not white folks. Where? And and rolling everywhere, uh, everywhere. No, where there I, are no, folks, no, I can tell you. Everywhere right. where there are black folks. I'm not just talking about cities. I'm not. I'm, I mean, it's obviously if there ain't no black folks living in Indiana, then black folks don't get those jobs. No, what first I'm of all, no, but there are black people in Indiana. And, 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 and I mean, the, the reason I'm saying that because today um, this commentary was placed. Uh, they ran in Barron's. Uh, written by Ursula Burns, who was the former CEO of Xerox, uh, Robert Smith, who was the richest African-American in the country, John Rogers, uh, of course, Era Capital, and David Clooney. This is the headline, folks. Go to my computer, please. Uh, it says, the Biden administration promised diversity. Here's one way it can deliver. And they're talking specifically about, uh, uh, about the infrastructure bill uh, and saying that they are going to have to utilize this bill uh, to drive the issue of uh, diversity in uh, with that. And it's, this is what they say. Federal contractors must also diversify the types of minority-owned companies they engage, including firms in professional services, financial services, legal, advertising, technology, and other related fields. And this is what they say. Currently, only 5% of federal contracting dollars are required to go to minority and women-owned businesses, even though black people alone account for approximately 13% of the U.S. population. That paltry 5% target has resulted in millions of dollars in missed opportunities for black businesses, workers, and communities. We can and should increase the federal contracting minimum for black firms to 13% commensurate with the country's black population. Okay, and so that's what I was just saying, right? I said that we are the blue-collar workers, black and brown people, who are getting those jobs. We are not necessarily the ones getting the contracts, and that needs work, and we all know that that needs work. That's one of the reasons why, um, God, God rest his soul, Marion Barry was mayor for life in D.C., because he was one of the pivotal forces that made sure not just that we were the ones with the boots on the ground in the streets fixing the ditch, ditches, but that our black and brown business owners, specifically black business owners, were getting those government contracts. And I agree with everything that Ursula and Robert and everybody else said, that needs work, but that does not mean that the people who own the businesses who are getting the contracts are not hiring or don't already have employees who are black and brown, and those are our jobs. So there's, there's two different things, and, and, it's, not, and it's not either and, it's, it's both. It's, it's both. We need both, but that does not mean that the infrastructure bill and dollars that are pouring in for infrastructure projects, especially in urban areas, don't mean increased jobs for our folks. 
but, but Moni, this this is my my issue with the infrastructure bill. So between the hard infrastructure bill, one point two trillion, and the and the human infrastructure bill, uh, was that three point uh, three point five trillion dollars spent on that? You know, that's close to five trillion dollars being spent last week, and there's no guarantee that goes to the black community. Even if we got our, just our portion of the population. Let's say we got thirteen percent of that as a community. That'd be six hundred and fifty billion dollars. I doubt severely that six hundred fifty billion dollars of that five trillion is earmarked for the black community right now. So when we're going back to people telling them you need to get out and vote in our ancestors and raising our fist and all that in 2022, uh, they're going to be asking, where's our $650 billion? Where's our voting rights bill? Where's our criminal justice reform? Oh, it's not there? Well, why do I need to turn out again? I think that's the wall that Democrats are going to run into if they don't start prioritizing the black voters. And that's the point, Georgia, again, that I was making uh, to our other three guests that I am, I've, I've been hearing, and, I, and, I, and I'm saying, you better figure out a narrative. And, I'm, and, and let me be real clear, saying our lives depend on it is not going to do it. I agree. I absolutely agree with that, but that's not going to do it. That's not going to pull that person over who says, <coughs> I'm seeing these things happen, and I don't think it's benefiting us, so why should I vote? That, and I get the rallies, I get all of those things, but unless they are confronting that head on, it's going to be a problem. Roland, I, I couldn't agree with you more. As a journalist, I'm preparing to head to D.C. Uh, in a few weeks for the March on Washington, where we're going to hear from uh, Reverend Sharpton focusing on uh, the attack against voting rights. And so what will be the narrative he delivers in his speeches? I want to know, will we hear from Stacey Abrams? Because as we're trying to craft a narrative to convince the black community to come out and vote, and exactly and how coming out to vote is going to dictate who gets in office and all of the new laws that get passed. Uh, the, the narrative I think that we should be crafting should come from Stacey Abrams because she's been the one person that we've seen successfully turn an entire state. So someone who is organizing on this issue needs to uh, call her team and figure out what her rate is for consulting and set up a Zoom call and, and do some organizing. And that's not necessarily my area of expertise as a, a journalist per se, but we did see how effective her team was in Georgia. And so if the blueprint is already there, why not uh, replicate what she did in that state across the country? Because you're right, um, even though coming together and doing the, the rallying and the marching is, is one part of how our uh, community communicates with one another, it hasn't proven to be successful in getting people out to vote. Uh, the other thing that I'll add to that, just historically speaking, you know, um, when, when you look at uh, when black men and women were given the right to vote, historically, this country has continuously uh, attacked our right to vote as a strategy to maintain power. And so uh, there has to be a continuous effort to combat that. And Republicans may end up shooting themselves in the foot here, I'll, I'll add to the conversation, because uh, one of the tactics Republicans are using is uh, making uh, voting by mail less accessible. And according to studies that have been done in California, more Republican voters used uh, voting by mail as a method to to cast their, their vote than Democratic people who voted for for Democrats. So the the way that this comes out in the wash is also going to be interesting. 
Again, I, I'm just saying, first of all, I absolutely agree with the initiative to start early, uh, to fan across these states. But I'm telling you, there are troubling headwinds if, if, in terms of dealing with the issue. That is, if people say, what got passed that benefited us? If you don't have an answer that is succinct and clear, this is going to be a tough road to hold. And so we certainly be focusing on... Everything that got passed benefit us. I, I don't. I'm, no. I don't, again, okay, Monique. What I just said is you have to articulate that in a way for that person who doesn't see it to understand it. And so what I'm saying is the the, the, the two biggest things that people are looking at. It, you look at the look at the actual data. The survey of black voters, George Floyd Justice Act, and actual voting bills. Not that got passed has gotten passed yet. So what I'm saying is. A part of the communication strategy is you have to tackle that head on and craft a narrative to be able to explain of the things that did get passed, this is how it impacted us. And what I'm saying is that has to be a part of it. If it's not, it's going to be difficult. Okay, but people listening right now, Roland, you got a big brain. What you want to tell them? And what, I, and what, I'm, say and what, and what I'm saying is that's going to be a deal. And what I'm saying is uh, our lives depend on it. That ain't gonna fly. Uh, it's gonna be worse. It's gonna be. It's gonna be worse. Hold on. It's gonna be worse if they win. That's not gonna fly. I'm telling you, it's not gonna fly. And that's and that's fine. That's not. The, those aren't the only two things to say. I mean, that's why I said people who actually know what the legislation is that has been passed. And can explain it. I think we make the mistake thinking that our people are stupid when no, they're not. No, 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 they're not stupid. They're item voters, and they're not. Uh, they they didn't vote. We need the Voting Rights Act, but that's not why they voted. They voted because that crazy man was in there, and everything was going to hell in a handbag. Well, guess what? Every crazy man is not on the ballot. But guess what? Crazy man is not on the ballot in twenty twenty two. So you exactly. know what? And, and Democrat, exactly. Demo Democrats are going to have to explain how do you control the White House, the House, and the Senate, and you still didn't get it passed. You got to answer that. They got to answer okay. it. Well, I mean, don't they know? We know math. We know numbers, right? Okay. I mean, the, I, the, I fact, the fact that, that, that narrative ain't going to fly. The look, fact look, that we look, have a vice president that can break a tie in the Senate is is an excellent start but but if anybody understands how many senators we need in order to get things done and that those votes aren't there then maybe those people who do understand that should start explaining it because our people can understand that oh, oh no, so no, no i get it as it's not as simple as we got all three houses so we can do whatever the hell we want to do and everything can just get passed by fiat like president biden can just stand up there and say let there be voting rights let there be better health care let there be infrastructure there's there's a system here that has to happen and that's what we're stuck with so if we need more votes in order to have an easier time of it because the glp is the devil then I'm here telling y'all the GOP is the devil. I am aware of that. But here's what I, also, what I also know. There were 300 meetings over the infrastructure bill, and I ain't seen 300 meetings on any of the filibuster on the voting bill. And what I'm saying is this here. This White House is going to have to do a hell of a lot more heavy lifting because here's the deal. If they do not get, and let me just give just real numbers here. Sher Sherry Beasley, 
okay, who was a North Carolina State Supreme Court uh, Chief Justice, lost by 400 votes. Democrats could have had a 61 majority on the North Carolina Supreme Court. It's now actually 4 to 3. She's one of the candidates running for the United States Senate. Here's the deal. If you don't go to rural North Carolina and talk to those black folks and explain to them, then you're going to have 18 to 20 percent who are going to support the candidate who's running to replace a, 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 a Burr like you had that number with Tom Tillis. You're going to have that. And what I'm saying is, if you don't do it in Cincinnati and Cleveland, then, then Tim Ryan ain't got a shot. If you don't do it in Wisconsin, Rob Johnson is going to get reelected. If you don't do it in Pennsylvania, guess what? Democrats are not going to take the seat of Pat Toomey, and then Val Demings is not going to have any shot against Rubio in Florida. All I'm saying is this is real. This is real simple. What Democrats cannot do, you cannot keep going back to black people and saying we need you to turn out. Uh, but when somebody says, "What of the major bills got passed?" and you can't say they did. It's going to be a problem. That's all I'm saying. And so as a part of the narrative that they got to craft is they got to have a strong narrative to answer that question because I'm telling you, it's coming. Speaking of what's coming, we're going to be hit even harder by this Delta variant that is going on. Folks, health officials say all Americans will now have access to COVID booster shots beginning next month. The U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention and the U.S. Food and Drug Administration suggests getting the booster shot eight months after your second dose will be made available beginning September 20th. The CDC believes up to 664,000 deaths will be reported by September 11th. Now, folks, the country has more than 37 million reported cases and 640,000 deaths. Today, President Joe Biden said we are still in the pandemic of the unvaccinated. Cases may be declining in a few places. Cases are still rising, especially among the unvaccinated. There are still 85 million Americans who are eligible to get vaccinated or remain unvaccinated and at real risk. Across the country, virtually all of the COVID-19 hospitalizations and deaths continue to be among the unvaccinated. In Alabama, more than 90% of the current hospitalizations are among the unvaccinated. In Texas, 95% of those in hospitals are unvaccinated. Right now, it's worse in states where overall vaccination rates are low. But let me be clear, even in states where the vaccination rate is high, the unvaccinated in those states are also at risk. And, uh, and we're seeing cases rise as a result. Quite frankly, it's a tragedy. There are people who are dying and who will die who didn't have to. So please, if you haven't gotten vaccinated, do it now. Do it now. It can save your life and it can save the lives of those you love. Well, folks, in New Zealand, they got some common sense. New Zealand put the entire nation on strict lockdown for at least three days after finding a single case of coronavirus infection in uh, the community there. Throughout the pandemic, the country has reported more than 2,000 cases and 26 deaths. New Zealand managed to stem out the virus, and the last outbreak was in February. Joining us now is Dr. Joseph Graves, Jr., Professor of Biological Sciences and Sciences, North Carolina A&T. Doc, glad to have you back. So, okay, I need you to first explain this, Doc. These people are going, well, people who got the vaccine, they're still getting COVID, so why should I take it? A year ago, you explained to folks 
that the vaccine that is actually being developed is specifically for COVID-19. That when there were strains and when there were variants, then that vaccine does, is not as fully effective. And so I've seen these people are now saying, well, how are people dying who still had the vaccine, but they then got COVID? Well, I mean, Roland, this is really, really basic. The vaccines are effective and safe. They protect you from getting serious cases of COVID-2019. Um, people who have been vaccinated are not dying. They're not being hospitalized. However, the original vaccines were designed for the original SARS coronavirus variant. A year has gone past, and as the president said in his news conference, about half of the eligible people in the United States have not been vaccinated. And that group of people is allowing the virus to warp speed its evolution so that it becomes more transmissible and more dangerous. And to give you a clear representation of how much dangerous it is, when, when SARS-CoV-2 started, um, it had an R0 number, the number of people that it could infect from one infected person, of around three. The Delta variant now has an R0 of nine. And that means in 10 generations of SARS replication, it will infect nine to the 10th power people. And so we're at a situation that should have been avoided by using some simple common sense, which unfortunately, the half of the people in this country, and unfortunately we know who that half is, most of those people are people who voted for Donald Trump in the 2020 election, see vaccination as some evil plan. But in fact, vaccination is a way that we get in front of this virus and it's a way we return to our lives. But if we don't get vaccinated, things are going to get a whole lot worse. And it's going to get a whole lot worse a lot sooner than people can imagine. Okay. And 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 so we're still dealing with these folks who are who are just Crazy and outlandish. You've got DeSantis and Abbott who are refusing to actually allow mask mandates. You have that going on. Um, and, and and you're dealing with uh, folks who just, oh, uh, I've already seen this whole deal. Okay, I don't know what's in it. I don't know what's in the booster shot. Uh, somebody tweeted, uh, I saw this interesting uh, deal. They said, well, you didn't know what the hell those 11 herbs and spices in the KFC chicken is. I mean, you didn't order that chicken. Um, and so you, so you keep hearing that. How do you respond to all the folks out there who are saying, oh yeah, you don't know what's in the vaccine. You don't know what's in the booster shot. The way I respond is simple. COVID kills people. We don't have a single case of a person dying from the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine. In fact, what the SARS-CoV-2 vaccines have done is they've saved people's lives. And so it comes down to some really simple things. If you don't value your own life, then what about the lives of the people you care about? What about the lives of people you love? Now, we have teachers going back into classrooms this fall without mask mandates and without vaccination mandates across the country. Now, a lot of these teachers have young children 
So they're going to be going into situations where they can possibly pick up the COVID virus from asymptomatic people and then take it home to their children. And we now know that the Delta variant is making children sick. American hospital beds are running out. And a lot of those people in those beds now are young kids who, unfortunately, aren't yet eligible for the vaccine. So if these people have any decency whatsoever, they need to start thinking about people other than themselves. They need to examine why they believe these idiotic things that they believe. So then you have the folks who are, again, who, who put stuff out and they're like, well, you know, um, I trust the Lord, uh, natural immunity. I'm looking for this. Somebody sent me uh, this post earlier. Apparently, Layla Ali posted something today that caused people to say, you know, what the hell are you talking about? Uh, and so uh, here it is right here. Um, let me see if I can uh, actually uh, pull this up. Um, give me one second. Um, I saw it. I didn't know if it was legitimate, but apparently uh, she had posted this uh, on her Instagram stories uh, and not necessarily. Um, uh, so this this is what uh, she wrote. Now, mind you, Layla Ali has got like four million Facebook followers, millions on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, people don't seem to understand that just because some folks don't wear masks, don't want the shot, don't listen to the media or live in fear, it doesn't mean they don't believe the virus is real or think they can't get it. They know it was created to harm humanity. They simply choose to build up and trust their own immune system like they have been doing all their life. If they get it, they will deal with it. It's a God-given choice. I know this I know, I know this kind of faith is impossible for some to comprehend. But lean not on your own understanding. Before you claim they are putting others in danger, you should do your own research to learn if that's actually true. You can't change anyone but yourself, so you do you. Real talk, Layla Ali. How do you respond to that? Well, the uh, first thing I want all your viewers to know is that not only am I a research scientist, but I'm a confirmed Episcopalian. I go to church every Sunday. I've served on the COVID vaccination task force of the Episcopal Diocese of North Carolina. This morning, I was in a session with the faculty and the staff of the New Brunswick Theological Seminary. These are people who study the word of the Lord and who are in service to their communities. And none of them are saying things like that. And so, um, you know, we, we have had a history of some, some bad science. And we've also had a history of some bad theology. And, and so, you know, I, I do want people to think for themselves. I do want them to be introspective. I do want them to have strong faith. But, you know, in the words of the famous joke about the man who was sitting on top of a house in floodwaters and when the boat came to rescue him he said um i don't want a boat i'm waiting for god to rescue me and then when the helicopter came to save him 
He says, well, I don't want to get on the helicopter. I'm waiting for God to rescue me. And then after he died from the flood and got to heaven and he asked God, why didn't you rescue me? Well, God said to him, well, you know, I sent you a boat and I sent you a helicopter. And so that's where we are. Okay. We have God-given intellect, which has allowed us to develop one of the strongest biomedical and biotechnology research infrastructures in the world and hospitals and medicines that can prevent people from getting sick and dying. The SARS COVID-2 um, vaccines are the result of the tremendous uh, advancements that have occurred in the last 20 years. You know, when people say the vaccines came out so quickly, the reason they came out so quickly is because our science and understanding of how to make vaccines went through a huge jump in the last 20 years. And so when we have something that is as valuable and as important as this technology, which can save lives, it just seems to me that this is not good theology to say, oh, well, let's just wait for God to send uh, an angel rather than a helicopter. It's, again, um, I, as, as a person of faith, I have to stand resolutely against that kind of, of bad religion. Well, uh, Pastor John P. Key, uh, I think probably is in line with you. He put this on Instagram today. Uh, we're going to try to have him on the show tomorrow. This is what he said. This thing seems to only hit home when it affects the people you know. Hashtag your family. Today, I've received tons of horror stories that I will not post. I'll go out on a limb and tell you I believe this disease is preventable. We pastors beg you to take the necessary precautions and you laugh, mock, and criticize us. And now your family is angry because the church won't handle your $12,000 funeral expense. Says it all, Roland. It says it all. Uh, it is uh, crazy uh, out here. Dr. Graves, thank you very much uh, for uh, enlightening us with real information. Uh, I have people sitting here hitting me up saying, why won't you have uh, so-and-so on? And my, and my first thing I say, is this person a doctor or a scientist? If not, I don't want to hear a damn thing from them about COVID-19 or the vaccine. I don't want to hear. I'm not putting conspiracy theorists on. I'm not putting these fools on and all this old so-and-so. And again, when Layla's like, oh, do your own research, that's part of the problem now. We got a whole bunch of, uh, you know, Google doctors out here who all of a sudden are saying this when these are the same people, Doc, who have, who have allergies and got no problem taking Zyrtec D uh, or any of these medicines, and they ain't got a damn clue what the hell is in that allergy pill. They get a headache, they take Tylenol or leave, they ain't got no clue what's in uh, that Advil or that Aleve or that Tylenol. And so it's just amazing to listen to these people who so many of them are on high blood pressure medication, diabetes medication, thyroid medication, hypertension, all this sort of stuff, and they sitting here going, oh, I don't, I don't know, I don't know what's in it. Like I keep saying, ain't no flip side to death. Uh, I'm completely with you, Roland. If you're going to build a bridge, you don't tell people do your own research and then go out and build a bridge. I mean, there are people who went to school, who, who have training, who are, are professionals in the area, who are engineers, who know how to build a bridge that's not going to fall down. In the same way, with regard to medicine and science, there are people, and, and I'm not saying just white folks, there are credible research scientists who are African-Americans who have been working to help 
end this pandemic from the very start. In fact, as I'm sure I've said on one of your earlier um, interviews, one of the people who helped design the Moderna vaccine, Dr. Kitzbetia Corbett, is an African-American woman who graduated from UNC Chapel Hill and is now at Harvard at the, uh, at the Chan School of Public Health. So if, if, if folks won't listen to us, um, I don't know what kind of research they're doing. Because if I want to build a bridge, I'm not going to go to somebody who um, builds shanties for a living. Well, in fact, uh, I'll leave it on this point. It's a whole bunch of folks taking vitamins. They probably haven't even read the back where they say the FDA, the, FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, has not approved any of this. But they actually believe that those vitamins make them better. Yeah. Uh, and that's one of the things that we're working very hard, uh, particularly at North Carolina A&T, to do, um, to build more African-American students who go into engineering, into medicine, into biomedical research. Um, we have, you know, leading academic institutions that are, that are working to help end this pandemic. And so one of the things I'll, I'll say to your viewers, um, if you want to see this end, you should be supporting your HBCUs. Absolutely. Dr. Graves, we appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you, sir. Uh, real quick with my panel, I really love this one. If you watch Fox News and you got crazy people like Sean Hannity, Maria Bartiromo, Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram, uh, spreading all their nonsense about COVID, and the idiots on Fox and Friends uh, like Ainsley Earnhardt, who literally said today that, oh, when you take Regeneron, that's like getting the vaccine. No, it's not, idiot. It's not. So check this out. Fox News is requiring that all employees provide their vaccination status in today in a collective database. Oh, y'all, and this is the same people who are against vaccine passports. In a statement sent to all staff, Fox News urged employees to enter vaccination information into a portal and have implemented a mask mandate for public spaces with the buildings. The statement says the following. Dear colleagues, as all of you know, the health and safety of our employees has been our priority at Fox News Media since the start of the global pandemic 17 months ago. Whether at work or home, the COVID-19 pandemic has had a tremendous impact on all our lives. Here's some of the steps we're currently taking given the rise in COVID cases nationwide and the spread of the Delta variant. We have asked all employees, whether on site as part of our essential workforce or working remotely, to upload their vaccination status into Workday. This is being done for space planning and contract tracing purposes in conjunction with CDC, state, city health and safety guidelines. All employees must enter their status no later than today, August 17th, by close of business. Number two, last week, we reinstated our on-site COVID testing program every Monday and Thursday for select essential employees due to their work environment within our New York offices. These employees have been contacted and will be required to test at least once weekly due to their role at Fox News Media regardless of vaccination status. In our New York offices, masks remain optional for vaccinated individuals, but are strongly encouraged in public areas throughout the building. However, we are requiring employees to wear a mask in small, confined spaces with limited opportunities for social distancing and where there are multiple employees, including control rooms. All employees and vendors are required to complete a daily screening ahead of reporting to work. At many locations, you will be asked to display either a work care, go to work green screen, or a Fox Clear Pass to a security representative upon entering the building or workspace. So, Robert, it's hilarious to see all of these Fox people 
going nuts about mask mandates when their own company has one. Uh, speaking of which, I'll be on Fox at twelve forty-five tonight, so make sure you guys tune in for that. Hell but no, you're, you're right, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> look, but look, you're you're right, Roland. And what I don't understand about the people who are against the mask on the right at this point, last year they they made the argument that all of this was to be against Donald Trump. That the whole point of the mask mandate of the lockdowns was to hurt Donald Trump and make sure he couldn't get reelected. Well, now the election is over. Joe Biden's in charge. Democrats are you know, running the ship now, and it's still here. Remember, they made that argument. I bet you the day after the election, the virus will just go away magically. It did not. So what exactly is it, Cassie Abelli, to justify their thought that somehow this is still a conspiracy theory against them, even though there are literally 600,000 fewer people in this country than there were a year ago? The entire thing does not make sense. But beyond those people on that side of the aisle, do you do think we need have more work to do in our communities where we're still looking at around 30, 31 percent vaccination rates in a community that has some of the highest comorbidities of any communities in the country? We have to work on getting the proper information out. We have to work on getting those federal dollars to push these vaccination drives, to push the advertising, to push the nonprofits that can get the vaccine penetration because we cannot be falling into the same trap as the maggots on the other side. Uh, Monique, I find this would be hilarious in Paris, Texas. The school board has figured out a loophole uh, from Governor Greg Abbott's ban against masks. They said, let's just make it part of the school uniform dress code. <laughs> Gotta love outsmarting his ass on that one. I mean, it's a shame we have to do that. You know, I, I watched yesterday as the news came out that he's positive for COVID. And of course, he'll likely be just fine because he's vaccinated. So he's having all these maskless gatherings and just bragging about all the standing room only crowds and the people in there are getting sick. He's getting people sick, going around with COVID and then He'll get himself to be fine. He'll have the best insurance possible. He'll have the best care possible while his constituents are dying. It's it's atrocious that that school systems have to go to these measures uh, just to keep themselves, their employees, and students safe. And, of course, uh, Georgia and Florida, the State Board of Education, they unanimously voted uh, to sanction two school districts with mass, mask mandates violating the governor's order. The authorized state education commissioner to take legal steps against those two school districts, including Broward, for requiring people in their school districts to wear masks. These people are nuts. Yeah, it, it's sad. And, and that crazy foolishness has claimed the life of four educators already in Florida. DeSantis uh, leading the foolishness by selling merchandise on his website, mocking uh, those who are are wearing masks. And the reality of it is just like Fox News, when you have people like Tucker Carlson on air uh, mocking people who are wearing masks and now his own company is mandating it, the truth will always come to the light and the numbers do not lie. And so uh, if you just do a, a quick uh, search on the statistics um, the, the New York Times has been doing a, a great job tracking not just the statistics here in, in our country, but internationally. And America is failing. We're leading the world with the amount of new COVID cases currently. And so unless people uh, stop following along uh, with, with governors like DeSantis and the governor in, in Texas, uh, we are going to continuously see that uh, the numbers are going to increase. Speaking of failure, when we come back, we'll talk about Baltimore, where a massive failure of one student has caused 
his family to say, what the hell is going on? We'll talk about that next right here on Roller Martin Unfiltered. show and uh, the performance after the game. So check out Roland Martin Unfiltered from the Swag Meat Challenge in Atlanta. And don't forget the game airs at 7 p.m. Eastern on ESPN on Saturday, August 28th. Francis' son, a senior in Baltimore City Schools, earned a .13 GPA. No, not a 1.3, a .13 GPA. Now the 19-year-old is going to begin high school over as a freshman. A senior missed hundreds of days of school and failed nearly all of his classes, yet he was promoted every year and was ranked somehow 62 out of 120 students. Hmm. Someone has to explain that. Joining us right now is Andre Riley, Communications Director of Baltimore City Public Schools. Andre, how you doing? Hello, Roland. I cannot hear you. Uh, can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? I can, Roland. It's great to see you this evening. I missed most of the lead-in, but Again, I'm happy to be here. All right, glad to have you here. First and foremost, um, how, how does this happen? How does a student have a .13 grade point average get to their senior year and then is sent back to the ninth grade? How? Well, Roland, that doesn't happen. What happened and what was reported on, there's some contextual matters that I need uh, the public to understand. First of all, that student was not a senior. He had only earned enough credits to be a freshman. Therefore, his GPA was being compared with students that just started their educational careers who had not yet earned even a credit yet. So what's happening now is you're taking a student that is repeating a course who has a GPA you're comparing him with a stu with students that don't have a GPA. So you're saying that he was not an actual senior? Uh, pardon? So you're saying he was not an actual senior? No, sir. Okay, so he's 19. So the last four years, where has he been? Has he been in middle school? Ha where Has he been in high school? Has he been repeating the same grade every single year? Now, I want to be careful, Roland, because, again, we're talking about a student's private educational record. 
And by law, we can't disclose the specifics of any child's education. That's personal information. Uh, other folks may choose to discuss that in a public forum, but we choose not to do that. Okay, so... Why student, why he, his status. That wouldn't be fair to him. Okay, so they put out, the, the story's been put out, the family has actually spoken as well, and so what's actually happening here then? So, what is again, is he a, has he been in high school or was he in middle school? The student was in high school the entire time. So he's been in high school for the last four years. Yes, sir. And he's never advanced out of his freshman year. To advance from any grade level, you have to earn a minimum level of credits, which means you have to pass courses. If you've not been passing those courses, or if you, let's say, have poor attendance, then you can't earn credits to become a sophomore, a junior, or a senior. It's really the same as college. What, what Was his family notified? Were they ever letters sent, phone calls made? Uh, did, because they claim, the mother claims she did not know that her son had been failing for the last four years. Uh, yes, this has been a point of contention in the story, Roland. I'll just speak from our perspective, obviously. Uh, when any student misses any time at school, even one day of courses, you get an automated phone call. We also do home visits. We do emails. We do text. We do everything we can based on the information that we have for a given student. So if we do not have their proper contact information, perhaps they've moved, they have an update at us, there can be many reasons why. But, 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 do, but, but, but do you have record keeping? So let's, so let's deal with each one. Did, was his mother properly contacted via text message, phone call, and home visits? And do you have that document? We have records of those, yes, of any student that we contact. So you have records that indicate that the mother was contacted either via text, via phone, or a, or a home visit. So what you're suggesting is the mother telling these, this, news, this, this news organization that she had no idea her son was failing, you're saying that's not true. What we're saying in city schools is we have records that we, we reached out to that family and we did our best to communicate the status of that student for the last four years yes okay so when you say uh, again that th there were home visits how many home visits over the last four years how many phone calls how many text messages again Roland I do not want to dive into the personal records of the student right but that, now but, that, but, but that's actually not that's actually not a classroom record of a student I'm just speaking to how do you you say you have the evidence and so if you say our records our records show that we contacted the mother 85 times over a four-year period that puts into context i believe for the public who saw the original story where the impression was given at the, at the that our child was passed she had no idea he was just going through and now she thought he was going to be graduating and now he's back in the ninth grade I understand your point, Roland, and I'm not saying that it's incorrect, but I also say we have a in respect to the students' private educational records. Our perspective is that's not information we can release. So was it less than 50 or was it more than 50? Again, I don't want to dig in 
to that, but I know we contacted that student's family multiple times. Multiple times. When you say multiple times, is that more than 10 a year or 10 total in four years? I do not have four years worth of records. I know in the period in which we referenced with the student that we conducted home visits, phone calls, and we sent letters to the student and had contact with the mother. That's what I'm saying. And so you're saying the district had face-to-face -face contact with this mother prior to this story coming out detailing the, 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 the academic issues facing her son? Yes, sir. What is happening now? Obviously, the story has come out. Uh, folks ran with it. Uh, they're calling for uh, the firing of the CEO. And so what's the next step uh, for Baltimore Public Schools? The next step for Baltimore City Public Schools is to find better ways to connect with our families. Again, we know one of the biggest issues we're having, Roland, is reaching folks at the proper phone number and the proper address. That's a challenge for any urban school district, especially in an environment such as Baltimore. So what is your, so people move a lot, got it. So, so what, is your, what is your process then? So right now, when it comes to reaching their parents, what is your actual process do you, do you require what the student has to fill it out? So what do you, I mean, I mean, how do you verify? Our challenge right now, the process is we, we work to inform our families that we need you to update your contact information. It's a two way street. So we have to develop trust with them and we have to develop their confidence. So they feel comfortable sharing that information with us. No, 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 no. What I'm asking is what is your current process? What is it? Do you do it at the beginning of the year? Do you do it monthly? Do you do it each once a semester? What is your process to ensure that you have updated information on uh, that particular parent of each every, uh, of every child? What, what's your system? Our system is at the beginning of every year, Roland, we reach out to our families and we advise them to update their contact information. That's the same as any other school district, well, most school districts in the country. Uh, we give you the process of how to do it. We help you to log in to our campus portal if you don't know how to do that. And we hope we meet you at various events and things that we host throughout the summer where we seek to gather that information. No, from no, no, no. But, but that's the summer. Follow, okay, this is following me here. This is what I'm talking about. School year starts when? September or August? No, our school year starts on August 30th. Got it. This August 30th. First day of school, then do you send anything physically? home with the student and say, please return this filled out by your family member so we have their information. How many times does that happen between August and June? That happens one time at the beginning of the year as part of our family outreach, with the exception of last year where we were mostly virtual. Okay, here's the thing I'm trying to understand. Why is that happening once a year? Why aren't you doing that at the beginning of the fall semester and the beginning of the spring semester because if you say people are moving and you're trying to keep up, if you actually have two points of contact, at least at least at the beginning of each one of the sessions, and are you actually handing something to the student? Because you're saying go to our portal. Look, there's a lot of people who don't actually who don't hop online. You got folks who actually have flip phones versus smartphones. Uh, and so, what is your? So I get you have different events stuff along those lines. But are you physically handing something to each student saying this is required? You are required to bring this back with the right information and then we'll verify what the information is. 
up until this school, up until last school year, yes, we produced. You're trying to delineate between the fall and the summer, but the work of getting that information occurs throughout the summer into the fall. No, 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 no. Actually, 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 that's not what I'm doing. Summertime, no kids are in school, correct? Yes, but that does not mean that we do not have contact with our right. students. But, right, but the point I'm making is fall is when the kids come back to school, right? Yes, the first day of school is the day that they're required to be in school. However, we know our families need resources. They need access to information. So we work with them throughout the summer. No, no, I, I get that. Andre, I get week. that. I get that. Follow me here. School starts August 30th. When does the yes. second semester start? The second semester starts right after the new year. And what I'm saying, about- and what I'm saying, if you're saying, if, okay, this is what you told me. The problem that we're facing is that in an urban district, people are moving. So what I'm saying is, if you if you have information at the beginning of the school year, and then you require a second verification the beginning of the spring semester, they could have moved during that time span. So what it sounds to me like is that you're looking, you're getting information at the beginning of the school year, but you're not getting the second uh, connection until the summer, which is literally nine months later. So what I'm saying is, doesn't it make sense to get it in August and then get it again in January? Logically, yes, it does make sense. But the point that I need to emphasize is, even though we have that starting point at the beginning of the year, we reach out to our families throughout the year to issue reminders, to issue that to say that we need you to update your information. Here's how you can do it. So I do not want to be left that we just reach out to you at the beginning of the year and we'll talk to you to the next summer. That's that's incorrect. No, we reach out to you throughout the year, but the core time, the official initial outreach happens at the beginning of the school year. Does it, okay, so who sees this as a problem of the having a, and how do you deal with a 19-year-old man now still in school as a freshman we have we offer alternative learning environments for students that are over age or they're approaching over age but that's but let's go back just a little bit further if a student is struggling our goal is to identify it at the earliest possible opportunity and notify the family so not just for attendance and you missing days but if your student's not passing courses the goal is to have an intervention as soon as possible. So were there interventions with this student in four years? The challenge, without going too far into the student's record, is we have to be able to make contact with the family to imp- implement some of those interventions. And if we're not able to do that, then it creates a, a more difficult situation to navigate. So are you saying, okay, again, all right, so are you saying that Young man comes in, he's failing. Y'all made the effort to reach his family and you didn't reach anybody. I'm saying we were not successful in reaching a family. Okay, okay, here's, okay, now this is, I'm, again, the reason I'm, I'm asking these questions is because what I don't understand is I asked you earlier, did you have documentation where you connected with the family and you said yes? Now you're saying you didn't reach the family. Now, does that mean that you connected with his family, but frankly, they didn't follow up with the district. I'm trying to understand. Did you act? If somebody said, hey, we connected with Reginald 
and Imelda Martin. That means y'all physically talk to them or talk to them on the phone. And if my mama and daddy never responded back and didn't do anything to help my education out, then that's on my mama and daddy. So what I'm asking, did you actually connect with this young man's mother, present to her his failing, lay out a plan of action to help him, and did his family respond and work with the district to ensure he doesn't fail? Did that happen? This is the way it happened, but the short answer is yes. We reached out to that student in a variety of ways. We eventually made contact with the family. We laid out, like we did for any other student in that situation, here's where your student, here's where they're at today. Here's the struggles that they're encountering, and here's how we think we can make progress on it. And then we were not, I don't think either party would deem our work successful in getting that student uh, back on track. Uh, Roland, my job is I do not want to throw the family under the bus. No, 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 this is not, no, no, no. See, here's the deal. This is not throwing the family under the bus because I'm about to talk to the family and I'm going to ask them these very same questions because, again, when a story is published and then people run with it, I want to know exactly, you know, what the heck happened. And so at the end of the day, Somebody has to accept ownership for what has happened with this student. It's either, this, this is not actually complicated. It's either the family did not respond appropriately and frankly bear the brunt of him failing for four years or the school failed. The district failed. I mean, I, I, district, all right, I'll be very clear. The district reached out to that family through multiple methods and we eventually made contact with the family. We laid out a course to get that student back on track and it did not get implemented. We eventually were able to provide a learning environment to the student, but it was well after, well, it was, it was later than it should have been. So when you say it didn't get implemented, what you're saying is that the school district offered an education um, opportunity to fix the problem, but it was not acted upon by the family. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Okay. That's what I need to understand. Uh, Andre Raleigh, I appreciate it. Thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you, Roland. Have a great day. All right, then. Right now, folks, I want to talk to Pastor Shannon Wright, uh, the France family spokesperson, Dr. Chris Metzler, who's a conservative strategist and author of Divided We Stand, The Search for America. So, um, so... Okay, so Pastor Shannon, uh, you are representing the France family. Can you answer that very point there uh, that I just asked? What actually happened here? So we've been speaking with a lot of different families, not just um, in, in reference to this case. We, <laughs> what Andre just told you was a whole bunch of smoke. Um, the district has failed students not just this young man's student family but but a whole bunch of families in the city we've got 41 percent of the high school students with a with a d or below 41 percent 
And you're telling me we're looking at this one case, but the problem is that there are thousands of those that same case. No, I got, I got that, I got that, I got that, I got that. I, I want to deal with the thousands, but I want to deal with this one. But I need some questions answered. He just said that over a period of four years, the district repeatedly reached out to the family and they were unsuccessful in getting them to work with the district to deal with this young man's education issues. Did that happen? Not to my knowledge, no. When you say not to your knowledge, meaning... There was no proof of papers that were sent home, of outreach that was made. Okay. Has the mother... First of all, who were they reaching out to? Mother, father, mother, aunt, grandmother, grandfather. What, what Was it his mother? The district says that they reached out to his mother. What does his there mother say? No evidence of that, that she did not get any 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 communication she did not hear anything from them until they were at the point of saying that the child was failing and they didn't the district as in they didn't know what happened is she saying that she that they say they actually made direct contact with her is she saying they never made direct contact with her face to face that's what i'm understanding that's what i'm being told okay what i need to understand is how did the mother how was she unaware of the education status of her child for four years? Did she ever look at a report card? Did she ever check in with teachers? Did she ever make any visits uh, in four years to parent-teacher conferences? That I couldn't tell you. I, I don't know, honestly. Um, but I will tell you this. The, part of the problem that we're having in Baltimore City is that the grades are inflated. So you may not see failing grades because they will not fail the students. Social promotion is real in Baltimore, whether you have missed a little bit of time or a lot of time, because the concern is that the, the emotional damage that they will cause the student to keep them back and actually try and get them to grade level would be more detrimental. I, I, I told so you're not going to see failing grades. The lowest you will see is a 1.0, which is a D. And, when they, and if you listen carefully to how they say it, it's a 1.0 or less. They will never put the less down. Okay, but, th but this is the thing that, that I'm trying to understand, uh, Shannon and Chris, that, that again, I, 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 we're looking at this individual here. I, I cannot fathom a parent not looking at a report card for four years. I, I, I can't fathom having no conversation with any teacher or principal or anybody for four years. So I actually need, I'll, I'll be, and I, it would be great to be, it'd be great, uh, uh, Shannon and Chris, if we could have the family on. Because I think these are questions the mother has to answer. I read the story. She blamed the district for failing her. We kind of need to know what she did. <laughs> No, I understand that, Dr. Metzen. Yeah, and I think uh, that's part of uh, what we're looking at as we are investigating the failures here of the city. Um, so we definitely would need to have her come on because her position is uh, that the school didn't inform her. But as you said, the other part of the question is, what did you ask and when did you ask it? So that's the other piece of, of what we'll need to be able to do uh, to get the answers to this puzzle. I want to bring in our panel here, uh, Robert, 
uh, Monique, uh, uh, Monique uh, is gone uh, in Georgia. Uh, so, um, uh, I, Robert, do you have a question? Uh, well, I think my question will be, are there, uh, is there a handbook? Is there a, a very clear laid out process by which they can ensure that students don't fall through the system? Is there a way to track the, uh, track individuals, ensure that they are going to class, that they are uh, uh, getting the proper information? And are there, uh, uh, are there uh, apparatuses in place to basically catch them before they fall outside the safety net? And if those do not exist, or if, they, or if those do not exist, what's the process going to be for putting those in place? Did you okay? So there is a um, there is a, a a manual that the district discusses that they use, but it's not being implemented. That's part of the problem. Um, in their rescue recovery, uh, getting back to open schools program, it was a fifty-two page report. The first twenty-three pages of that report are what we did, who we talked to, what they told us, what we think they meant. On page twenty-four of that report is where they start with what we know we need to have. And the problem I have with that is everything that's on the 24th page of your document is things that it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out. We need more parental involvement. We need um, more access points for students to be able to get resources. All of the things that any parent paying attention would, would tell you after the end of the first semester, this is what I'm not seeing, this is what I'm missing. It took them 24 pages of their document to get to. And then when you look at the rest of the plan, which describes what they feel they need, there is not one clear measurable metrics outcome in that 52-page recovery, how we're going to do better plan. Georgia. And I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Robert, go ahead, Robert, go ahead. Well, well, my follow-up question would be, well, what, what's the community doing, what are parents doing to try to remedy that? Because uh, it, it does take two partners. It does take the governmental side of it, the district side of it, but also the community side to enforce those things to ensure that they're not, not falling through the cracks and ensuring that they're, those things are actually being implemented. Well, yeah, and, and uh, earlier today, one of the things that we announced is that there's a team of lawyers um, who will, in fact, bring a lawsuit against the city of Baltimore public school system um, for essentially educational uh, malpractice. Uh, that, of course, is from the uh, system standpoint, and we are absolutely getting the parents involved as well. Look, if you look at Baltimore City, if you look at the school system, if you look at the superintendent, and I think um, the spokesperson of before we came on, uh, gave you a good example. And that is, it is run by a bureaucracy that no one seems to know what's going on or how it's done. Discovery, of course, will tell us a lot of that. Dr. Metzler said that nicely. What you heard was a bunch of smoke and mirrors. They had a, a, the district had a program for parents to be able to, quote, understand their plan and how they intended to get the buildings open safely and to get the children back in school um, with, with minimal risk. Now, the interesting thing was they had two options for parents to participate. You can participate on Zoom, which is in Spanish only, or you could look on Facebook and, and perhaps write a comment. Now, they were the parents were supposed to have they were supposed to have coordinators on that were actually picking up the comments from the parents and answering them the district assistance was on the zoom link that was in spanish only 
there was no English interpretation or assistance for parents that had questions. And parents typed them in the chat. I know that because I was actually on that town hall. Then I made a list of every single parent. There were 796 comments. They answered three questions. Three. Georgia. Yeah, you know, I, I as a parent myself, I, I do believe that there's accountability on both sides here from a parent standpoint of checking in and following up and seeing how your student is doing periodically so that you don't get four years into your high school career and realize that they're they're not going to graduate. Right. But on the, the other side here, this one case is not an outlier. This is within a system where 41 percent of students are failing. And so I'm curious to hear from you guys. What are you hearing from the other families who are within this system? who also have students who are, are failing like what are their circumstances and 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 what is the situation contributing to how this education system in a whole is failing the city well from the parents we're hearing much of the same story we're also hearing and uh, we had some parents at the press conference earlier today who talked about all of the outreach that they have done to the city and the city simply refuses to answer them or to give them um, anything that they could work with. So what we're hearing from the parents is, look, I am involved. I want to be involved, but I am put up against a bureaucratic wall in which no one knows what the answer is. No one knows uh, for to from the, who to ask the uh, questions to and the answers are not given. So this is not an isolated, this is a systemic problem in the city of Baltimore. You have a superintendent who makes $20,000 a year less than the superintendent of schools in New York City. Um, and you have a failing system. She was given a raise because the system said, we believe she'd be recruited elsewhere, el recruited elsewhere. The, the, the average grade point average uh, of a student in Baltimore City is a D. This is systemic. And so that's part of what we're going to be exploring. And Discovery will tell us that. We also will have a number of parents who will tell their story as well and what their experiences are. This is not an isolated incident. Unfortunately, it really isn't. Um, and you got, you, you got folks that came through the Baltimore City School System that are now parents and raising their children in public schools. And some of them even say that they didn't realize how much they didn't know and didn't learn until they saw it reflected from their own children in the Baltimore City Schools. This, is, this has been going on for a minute. All right, then. Well, look, we certainly uh, would love to uh, talk to uh, the mother of this young man to get more answers, and hopefully uh, we'll also uh, talk further with folks in the Baltimore uh, School System about other plans to deal with the 41% of those students uh, with a 1.0 grade point average. Chris Metzler, that's Shannon Wright. We appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Today, opening statements and testimony began in the R. Kelly federal trial in New York City. The singer is facing racketeering and sex trafficking charges and is potentially facing decades behind bars. The partially sequestered jury of seven men and five women will hear the case. Prosecutors claim Kelly led a criminal enterprise comprised of people who helped promote his musical career. 
Kelly, who was acquitted in 2008 of child pornography charges, denies the allegations against him. Now, uh, for the first time, one of his victims testified against him. Uh, Johanda Pace uh, says she met R. Kelly when he was 16 years old. Go to my computer, please. Uh, when she was 16 years old, uh, and she said she was excited uh, to be in his presence, but then that began a six-month ordeal uh, where he had sex with her, physically and emotionally abused her. She is now 28 years old, uh, and again, she testified uh, in that particular trial today uh, in New York City. Not only that, uh, a bombshell was dropped um, in the court where prosecutors also uh, spoke to uh, the issue of uh, Aaliyah, uh, and so, of course, because uh, it goes back to when uh, R. Kelly was very much involved with her. This is the New York Times story. Uh, it says the, uh, the other five women involved in the case include the singer Aaliyah, who died in a 2001 plane crash, whose brief marriage to Mr. Kelly at 15 years old was among the first revelations to fuel questions over his conduct. And four women referred to only by their first names or by pseudonyms at the trial. The U.S. attorney said this case is about a predator. Uh, that's what she said. Uh, she also called uh, R. Kelly a serial manipulator who used the access granted by his fame to prey on his fans. Said he used every trick in the Predator handbook uh, to present himself as a mentor to the girls uh, and their families. And so this is what she said, quote, he began collecting girls and women as if they were things, hoarding them like objects that he could use however he liked. Georgia. Uh, this is going to be, uh, of course, for so long, uh, you had the documentaries about R. Kelly. You have people who are protesting, take his music off the air. Uh, and finally, uh, he goes to trial uh, a long time after uh, being acquitted in Chicago. You know, I think it's been a challenging thing for our community, the black community, to confront. But uh, we must in order to protect our young girls as a of, of three black girls. I definitely want to make sure that someone like R. Kelly is held accountable for his actions. Uh, it is unfortunate because so many people appreciated his music. You know, when I uh, listened to uh, some of his songs were so inspirational and, and filled with um, so much spirituality. But the other side of that coin and knowing how he has abused women, uh, you know, again, like I said earlier in the show, the truth will always come to the light. And there have been uh, dozens of women from across this country who have came forward saying that he did uh, these things to him and used his stardom and used his position, his celebrity to manipulate them um, into you know, different favors. And so it is uh, disgusting to know that there were people who were complicit, people who were standing by different producers or promoters who knew about his, his behavior and his choices and didn't stand up. And so I think that is also very telling as we're starting to see not only this case, but other cases with the whole Me Too movement and revelation that uh, we have a role when we see this playing out right before our, our eyes to intervene, to say something. Otherwise, we are also a part of the problem. Uh, there was another woman who testified, Robert, her name is Zells. Uh, she said she was 17 when she met R. Kelly when he was 48. Uh, she hoped that he would help her with a music career. She went to his hotel where he said he, quote, need to relieve himself, uh, which meant uh, pressure her into sex. Uh, and then, uh, according to prosecutors, Kelly said that he told the girl that he would take uh, care of her for the rest of her life and make her the next Aaliyah. She said she had sex with him, contracted herpes, and they said the disease that prosecutors say Kelly uh, transmitted to many others as well. If he is convicted, 
Again, he could spend between 10 years and the rest of his life in prison. Yeah, R. Kelly needs to be up under the jail. And I think people need to understand you have to separate the art from the artist. This comes up almost every time we have one of these celebrity cases where people uh, who have fond memories for the media-created persona of these individuals or they enjoy their music or they like the all-white parties and step in the name of love, uh, that does not mean that the person making that music cannot be a disgusting predator. Uh, and, and I think one of the best revelations that come out of the last decade is people like R. Kelly, is people like Jeffrey Epstein, is the, this reckoning of individuals who have been predatory on uh, uh, women and girls and even young boys for generations uh, finally having their um, finally coming to justice. You know, I went to law school in Chicago and there wasn't a, uh, a black woman over the age of about 35 who didn't have a t story from high school about R. Kelly pulling up in a car meeting young girls, so on and so forth. There's almost an urban legend like Candyman. So we have to start uh, prosecuting these people. We have to also start holding to account the enablers, the people who knew about him, the folks who funneled him and brought him the uh, his victims, um, the people who were on the payroll, who were uh, made to pay off these young girls who were complicit in all this, to make sure you, we break this down for the future so another generation of girls does not have to be abused. Uh, and so, uh, look, it's going to be a whole lot uh, happening. The case will be giving updates each and every single day. But let's talk about what's happening in Haiti. The death toll rises in Haiti as a result of the earthquake there. Survivors are overwhelming hospitals, leaving many people wondering how could they be taken care of. A 7.2 earthquake, uh, again, uh, has left uh, more than 2,000 dead, nearly 10 thousand injured that number is going to uh, rise in the coming days as well search and rescue efforts are being uh, stifled by lack of resources and heavy rains which have caused mudslides that blocked roads in the region the united nations says about half a million children now have limited or no access to safe water and shelter uh, there in haiti uh, let's talk about afghanistan where utah's governor is one of the eight who want to open their states to resettle Afghan refugees. In a letter to President Joe Biden, Spencer Cox, a Republican, is opening up the state to refugees fleeing Afghanistan, citing the state's origins as a haven for Mormons. He wrote, I recognize Utah plays no direct role in shaping U.S. diplomatic or military policy, policy uh, misspelling there, but we have a long history of welcoming refugees from around the world and helping them restart their lives in a new country. We're eager to continue that practice and assist with the resettlement of individuals and families fleeing Afghanistan, especially those who have valiantly helped U.S. troops, diplomats, journalists, and other civilians over the past 20 years. Hmm. Strong letter from the from uh, the governor there. Now, the reason that's important also, folks, is because you have Republicans now uh, who are running their miles now saying, oh, no, we shouldn't do this. You got the races over at, uh, at Fox News. I took a call from saying, replacement, replacement theory. They're, they're trying to replace us. No, dude, white folks just stop screwing and having sex in America. The average white death rate is higher in more than a dozen states than the average white birth rate. It ain't our problem. Y'all stop having children. That's what the hell is going on. Uh, uh, Robert, what do you make of also uh, a bunch of these uh, Republicans now complaining? I, I saw a tweet earlier. I got to try to find it where they voted a few days ago uh, against uh, speeding up the resettling of, Af uh, of these refugees. Now they're trying to complain that Biden isn't doing enough. Really? Well, 
Well, a couple of things. One, to jump back one story to uh, to Haiti. I'm actually going down there in two weeks uh, to help work out with disaster relief. I do encourage people, if you are donating, um, find people who uh, who work on the ground there. Find churches, nonprofit groups, individuals who work in the communities. Often when you contribute to larger aid organizations, that money does not get where it needs to go. We saw what happened during the earthquake a decade ago when, we, uh, when many donations ended up paying Red Cross salaries and flying people around uh, for the Clinton Global Initiative, but not actually making it to the ground. So find um, small churches in your community who have direct connection down there to people working on the island and try to help out that way. Uh, on this story, I, I find it amazing that Republicans have found this weird sense of relativity where Earth just started in January of this year and then they just found out about Afghanistan last Thursday. <laughs> For some reason, they forgot about from 2001 until 2020, they forgot that um, uh, Donald Trump released the Taliban leader in 2018. They, they forgot that Mike Pompeo signed a deal, uh, deal a year and a half ago. They released 5,000 Taliban rebels that uh, withdrew 15,000 U.S. troops and then guarantee you by May 21st of 2020, uh, 2021 that all American troops will be out. And indeed, that they hand-tied Joe Biden to the point that there was actually absolutely no way for this to end any other way than the way that it has currently ended. And now Republicans are realizing that this is going to start splashing back on them. You have a schism within the party, the ones who want to be true patriots, saying that they want to take in refugees. Brian Kemp here in Georgia said uh, something similar. But then you have the xenophobes and the, uh, the three percenters and so on and so forth who are saying, don't bring them over. So I think you're seeing the, the civil war within the Republican Party tearing itself asunder because they don't know if they're going to be pro-war, anti-war. They don't know if they're uh, leave the troops there, bring the troops home. They don't know if they're pacifists or war hawks. And, and right now they have no clear uh, guiding principles, and that's why you see such contradictory, contradictory evidence and contradictory statements coming out of Republican leadership. George, what do you make of, again, uh, the folks uh, with a very short-term memory loss? Yeah, well, we just did a, an extensive piece on this on the Benjamin Dixon show with Captain Barnes, who broke down that 20 year history that Robert just pointed to. You know, what was the expectation? Were we supposed to occupy Afghanistan forever indefinitely? Because we've already racked up a two, three trillion dollar bill uh, just by keeping our troops there this long. So I do think that uh, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is uh, doing the best that he can. 5,000 people have already been evacuated, um, and it looks like we're doing the best that we can, uh, given what's happened. But, you know, unfortunately, we're in this situation now, and it's a domino effect from what was decided 20 years ago. And Republicans, let's be clear, were the ones leading that charge to begin with. And so I, I do agree with Robert that there is a sense of double-mindedness where, you know, we, we want to occupy Afghanistan, but we don't want to run up the bill. And so you're going to have to deal with the fact that now we're going to have refugees who are going to be evacuating here. It is it is going to happen. Um, and there is a number of journalists. There's 200 journalists who have been on the ground, who have been our, our eyes and ears bravely documenting what's happening that are now going to have to figure out what is their evacuation plan as well. So there's many layers to this. And it's a story I think that more Americans uh, should be paying attention to. Uh, the folks at ABC News, uh, they had uh, an exclusive interview, George Stephanopoulos, with uh, President Joe Biden. Uh, they did uh, drop uh, a clip of the interview um, a little bit earlier. And so uh, uh, let's, let's watch this. All troops are supposed to be out by August 31st. 
Even if Americans and our Afghan allies are still trying to get out, they're going to leave? We're going to do everything in our power to get all Americans out and our allies out. Does that mean troops will stay beyond August 31st if necessary? It depends on where we are and whether we can get ramp these numbers up to five to 7,000 a day coming out. If that's the case, we'll be, they'll all be out. Because we've got like 10 to 15,000 Americans in the country right now, right? And are you committed to making sure that the troops stay until every American who wants to be out yes. is out? Yes. How about our Afghan allies? We have about 80,000. Well, that's not the Is estimate. that too high? That's too high. How the many? estimate we're giving is somewhere between 50 and 65,000 folks total, counting their families. Does the commitment hold for them as well? The commitment holds to get everyone out that, in fact, we can get out and everyone should come out. And that's the objective. That's what we're doing now. That's the path we're on. And I think we'll get there. So Americans should understand that troops might have to be there beyond August 31st. No, Americans should understand that we're going to try to get it done before August 31st. But if we don't? The troops will if stay. If we don't, we'll determine at the time who's left. And? And if, they're American force, if there's American citizens left, we're going to stay till we get them all out. One of the questions he was asked, uh, how they not know what was going on here. You've had the head of the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff who said that um, they had no evidence that this was going to happen, uh, frankly, uh, in 11 days. Um, you know, that, uh, that it said it could actually go longer. I mean, the, the thing here that I, that, that, that's amazing to me um, uh, by folks here is not understanding, and Biden, in one of the clips, he talked about it, where he said, look, the Afghan folks just gave up. I mean, it's like, he's like, you're, you're told one thing, you're told one thing, and uh, something else happens, uh, and, and it's like, yeah, we thought people were going to be, um, uh, people are going to be, uh, holding the line. Um, but again, what you have, here's the thing that's, that's crazy to me, Robert. This is Biden said the Afghan president, he hopped on the plane and left. So you're sort of like, well, who the hell is in charge? The folks that are like, well, what the hell? We're just going to give everything over to the Taliban. I'm trying to understand what do people think was going to happen if the entire Afghan military, 300 plus thousand people, just put their arms down and said, yeah, we're good? Well, look, Roland, if we had pulled out in 2002, and we pulled out in 2022, and we pulled it out in 2022-22, it would have ended exactly like this. If a, if a military force can take over a country in 10 days, then you were not the liberators, you were the occupiers. The <laughs> Taliban is the government that the Afghani people want. There's video coming out of you, look on international press on Reuters and Al Jazeera, of the Taliban celebrating with ice cream parties in the street, playing <laughs> basketball games with children. This is the legitimate government of the Emirates of Africa. Afghanistan that was in place after the Mujahideen fell uh, to uh, uh, after the Mujahideen fell and then in 1998 the Taliban took over and then they were in power until the uh, America came in America very clearly came in not to end the war on terror because the terror operations were done after uh, Operation Anaconda in 2002 we all of our combat missions were done then we stayed there to protect the poppy fields we stayed there to protect the oil fields we stayed there to protect the tritium and the cobalt deposits under that country that's the entire reason we've been there for 20 years so when the taliban comes in 
the reason you saw the civilian government turn tail and run because they knew they did not have the legitimate support of the people. They knew that that army was a Taliban army. The all three hundred thousand of those that we trained, all two trillion dollars of those uh, resources that we left on the ground there, those were all simply turned back over to the uh, to the, their rightful owners, being the Taliban, because those soldiers put down those arms, changed uniforms, and turned against their uh, their government. And the Afghani uh, civilian leadership was lying to us the entire time, and we're going to have to hold them to account not to mention that the the afghan the taliban army still has all the weapons we gave to them in the 80s when they were fighting against the russians and now all the weapons we gave to them now so they have a 21st century military one of the largest in the uh, in the region 300,000 strong plus the taliban forces both one of the most modern military forces so now they are actually a regional power thanks to us giving them a bunch of free money and military weapons over the last 30 years uh, versus investing in our own country and let's not let's not pretend that we did not invade the Afghanistan for poppy and opium back in 2001 and then immediately go into an opioid epidemic in America as soon as we got a hold of those poppy fields. If, we, if you want to pretend that those things aren't connected, I, got, uh, I don't know what to tell you, but we need to have a real come to Jesus meeting about our foreign policy in this country. And I do want to, of course, uh, share what some of what uh, Secretary of Defense, well, Austin, retired four-star general, had to say today. Saying that we remain laser focused right now on Hamid Karzai International Airport in Kabul, and on doing everything that we can to continue evacuating Americans, allies, Afghans, who have worked al alongside us, and, and also other courageous Afghans at special ri risk. And to that end, I'm prioritizing three key concerns. First, the safety and security of our people and the people that we're trying to evacuate. As the chairman will brief you, the final elements of additional military forces continue to flow into Kabul with about 4,500 in place as we speak. They are trained and equipped to defend themselves and their operations. There have been no hostile interactions with the Taliban and our lines of communication with Taliban commanders remain open as they should be. My second focus is maintaining security at the airport itself. In concert with forces from our allies, our troops have set up defensive positions around the airport, and the airport is able to function safely. Now, we don't take this for granted, and I continue to be in daily contact with General McKenzie and commanders on the ground to make sure that they have what they need to keep it safe. My third area of focus, of course, is the pace, increasing the flow of aircraft and people out of Kabul. And we've flown out several thousand since the 15th of August, and our goal is to be able to increase our capacity every day going forward. Georgia, that was uh, Secretary of Defense uh, Lloyd Austin. I want to get your uh, thought, final thoughts here about what's happening uh, in Afghanistan. Absolutely. Well, in that same briefing, Roland, Austin talked about how he was on the ground in Afghanistan. So this is something that's very personal to him as well. And uh, I think the hard thing for a lot of people who have fought for our country is looking at this was 
Was it a victory or is this a loss? Did we lose? And uh, the way that things are going right now, I would say the latter. And so uh, as we continue to see our people evacuated, as long as there's cooperation with the Taliban, I do think the priority remains getting all of the Americans out of the country and coming up with a cohesive strategy for the refugees. Uh, you know, and looking at the fact that we've spent trillions of dollars on uh, Afghanistan, sending military there, keeping soldiers away from their families, we do have to uh, strategically and critically look at our uh, foreign policy structures because our nation, the infrastructure here is failing, our education systems here are failing, there's so many uh, systems here in our country that that money could have went to to build up our country. Instead, we're overseas trying to stabilize someone else's country and after 20 years failed at doing so. So it feels like uh, a waste of money, a waste of time, and uh, not to look at, at the amount of people's lives who are lost in the process. Absolutely. All right then, Georgia, Robert, and Monique, we certainly appreciate you all being on our panel today. Thank you so very much. Uh, folks, we're in the show, of course, uh, with a word from our partners here with Seek.com.